Welcome to Dreaming in Color, a space for social change leaders of color to reflect on how their life experiences, personal and professional, have prepared them to lead and drive the impact we all seek. I'm your host, Darren Eisen, and I invite you to join me in these candid kitchen table conversations, where together we celebrate these leaders' ingenuity, are inspired by their wisdom and wit, and learn how collectively we can all strive to do and be better. This is Dreaming in Color. As an Emmy-nominated political and voting rights activist, Maria Teresa Kumar has dedicated her career to advocating for inclusive political participation. She co-founded a national nonprofit organization with actress Rosaria Dawson called Voto Latino that uses media and technology to encourage younger generations of Latinx voters. Under her leadership, Voto Latino has registered over a quarter million voters and was a founding partner of National Voter Registration Day, the largest one-day effort towards voter registration. A true champion of a more inclusive democracy, Maria is a force to be reckoned with, and it's a true joy to talk with her today. It's so great to chat with you, Teresa. Really, I've been looking forward to this conversation. It's good to see you. you're looking good for the folks at home. And so, as you know, I'd like to start off the conversation by giving you the floor to offer a bit of an invocation. One of the things that I like to recall is in the times of difficulty and struggle, I often like to channel my grandmother, who was a single mom of eight by the time she was 26 years old. And she is, you know, Afro-Latina and made it despite all circumstances. And whenever there's struggle, my grandmother often reminds me that no is for everybody else. Hmm. And I say that because we're so often hearing no's that we realize sometimes we just need one yes. Hmm. And so as we renew, you know, our aspirations for 2023, just for us to carry that, that carries me of in this journey, we just need, we don't need all the friends. We just need the right friends to help make great big things. Listen, you're giving me all kinds of gems just to start. We do not need all, all the folks. We just need some of the folks. And yes, you only need one yes, right? To keep going. Thank you for that. That is a wonderful invocation and a great way to kick off the conversation. I know that you immigrated to the U.S. from Bogota uh, as a young girl. And I would just love for you to just tell us a little bit about how your background as an immigrant shaped your perception of the U.S. and also informed your idea of, you know, what is possible for our country's future. Ours are always these complicated layered stories that oftentimes our origin stories aren't always revealed at the moment. But then as you get older, you start understanding your why. Uh, And we ended up in this country, my mother and I, because my mother um, married this wonderful white man. (laughs) that was in Bogota at the time teaching English. And my mom, as I mentioned, uh, she is half black and uh, wasn't with my birth father because he wasn't sure how acceptable we would have been to the family. And so Mm. oftentimes in Latin America, we talk about colorism and the challenges of it and the opportunities that may result as of it. And quite frankly, it was his you know, insecurity of how dark I was or wasn't going to be that allowed my mom to find an incredible man through my dad, Ed Peterson. And uh, shortly after they met, my dad suffered from encephalitis, hmm. which is a disease to the brain. And we had to leave Columbia. So they had just started a family together with myself. I mean, I wasn't his biological daughter, but my, as my dad always said, we were so fortunate enough to ch- have chosen each other. And there was yep. no other man that I would have wanted to father me. And, but he became very ill, uh, and that meaning that he basically was half paralyzed, oh, wow. um, and had to learn how to walk and talk and all of that. And we didn't have the 
the resources or the family structure to do that. So we went back to his home, which was Geyserville, California, not too far from Sacramento. But to imagine we went from Bogota, Colombia, which is a bustling city of 7 million, to in the last census, the 2020 census, Darren, Geyserville was a metropolis of 700. Yeah, I can't even <laughs> imagine. Those, are, I mean, talk about being worlds apart. <laughs> <laughs> worlds, worlds apart. And we found ourselves at the doorstep of my grandparents who were kind people. They were grape growers. And they didn't know what to do with my mother. When you asked me, like, what shaped me, all of a sudden I found myself translating cultural norms, perceptions, and in, in a way that was eye-opening but also relevant for a four-year-old. Mm. My mother, because my grandparents didn't know what to do with her while my father was convalescing, sent her to work in the fields. Mm. And you can imagine that Thanksgiving dynamic sitting around the kitchen table with the rel- rest of the relatives with my mother's hands being dirty and Mm. fingernails and everything and recognizing that there was a different type of classism here that we had never encountered, right? But it shaped me to understand the importance of always culturally translating and recognizing that when even members in my most nuclear family saw my mother, they saw a person of color first Mm. and not herself, if that makes sense. Yes. And yet my father was the most loving individual that had to figure out how to navigate his family and my and our family in a separate way. And so it was, you know, talk about inputs <laughs> that were incredibly contradictory. And then I would spend my summers in Colombia. And in Colombia, I'd see Latinos, yes, absolutely, you know, taking care of the gardens, but they were also the lawyers. You know, they were also wearing suits. And I will tell you, Darren, the first time I saw a Latino in an African-American wearing a suit was when I was interning. I was 21 years old. I was interning in Washington, D.C. And I remember walking the halls and being, oh, my gosh, here, too, we could wear suits. And I think it speaks to why I do this work. And it was very much trying to be a strong advocate for the Latino community, for communities of color, and at the same time recognizing that the perception of when I walk into a room, as my mother would always say, is whatever the person, however they perceive you, it's something that they're carrying and it's their journey. 100%. It's their problem, you know, not yours. It's exactly. But, it's, but she did it more beautiful. It's not their problem. It's their journey. They're on a different journey. But your journey is you know who you are and you have a keen understanding of what our possibilities are. Flipping that script, especially as a young kid understanding that, for a parent to teach that, I think it allowed me to feel comfortable in spaces even when I wasn't necessarily welcomed. Mm, mm -hmm. And it allowed me to feel that fortitude of creating space in for others too. Just because they're on a journey, they don't feel like you should be in that space doesn't mean that you don't belong. Mm -hmm. And our job is to make sure that, especially in a multicultural America, if we are going to thrive collectively, that intersectionality has to be not just mere speech, but actual practice. There's so many things that are powerful about that story. One, I mean, definitely jumping worlds and, and jumping between Columbia and Geyserville. It's hilarious. But there is something to be said as well about your ability to have to find a sense of belonging in both of those worlds and how you were able to calibrate very different realities and find a sense of space in those various realities. And also, you know, I joke all the time about this ability of, you know, being able to normalize your world and see yourself as a part of very different worlds. And this is your world. This is what you know, right? Mm-hmm. And so in some ways, you, you've seen things that others haven't seen. 
you normalize things that you ha- that others haven't seen as well. And in many ways as well, you're able to make yourself at home because you're not at home anywhere, <laughs> almost, right? It's like it, you're, you're so out of place everywhere that you're in place everywhere. But how did the immersion across both cultures shape your beliefs on both democracy work and the power of democracy work? From a very young age, Darren, I knew that had my mother been a single mother in Colombia raising me by the virtue of my family roots, my destiny was predetermined. Hmm. My ability to thrive was already predetermined. It had nothing to do with ability or my mother's will. It was very much already the system, this caste system is real. It's language, right? When I would go home to Cartagena to spend time with my mom, I was the morena, which was the fair-skinned, dark one. But when I was in Bogota, I was la negrita because my full lips and my kinky hair and all of that, right? And so it was always that that struck out. Whereas when I was in the States, partially because they didn't know what I was, (laughs) there was almost this ability to navigate education and real education. And I had a chance to learn and I fell in love with this possibility of what America was. I remember being nine years old and I went to a Catholic school at the time. And I remember raising my hand when I was asked for what we're thankful for. And the teacher called on me and I said, I'm thankful because yesterday I became an American citizen. I was nine and I just, I still remember the moment, but I knew that that opened my possibility of everything. Whereas my country of origin, my abilities was predetermined. And it was this idea that democracy, while imperfect, at least I saw ways and crevices and openings that were not afforded to me had I not been here. And that is why I love the work that I do, because when we work with young people and we encourage them to vote, when we encourage them to run for office, when that light bulb goes on and saying, it's absolutely that what you're experiencing is, it's, it's not in your head, it isn't just, but we do have a framework and parameters that we can change a system. And one of my favorite stories of progress for Voto Latino was there's a young man, his name is Gregorio Casar, and he came to our very first power summit in 2014. He was the kid that was marching for fair wages. He was chaining mm. himself to walls and he came out of the power summit. He's like, I think I'm going to run for city council. He became the youngest city council in Austin history at 26 years old. He changed the law and got fair wages that went on to bail, bail bonds and so on and so forth. And then most recently, he became a member of Congress. Wow. And he tells the story of he had never been to Washington, D.C. He had never been on a plane, but he got on a flight and went to the Voto Latino Power Summit and realized that he could change how he interacted with institutions that he often fought out. And that is my purpose. This idea that there, one, there's more of us, that we actually do need to nurture our institutions and our democracy. We need to give it the love that it needs in order for it to perform as it must. I've been fortunate, like I'm a naturalized citizen, but I am absolutely American. And mm-hmm. there's no doubt in my mind that had my mom ended up in Sweden, I would never have been Swedish, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, would, I just wouldn't have, right? And so, if you know, if people want to talk about the value of democracy and being American, ask a woman of color and we'll yes. really tell you what that, what that is. You famously utilize some really unique strategies to reach citizens and get them involved in the democratic process. Uh, Pioneering text messaging for voter registration in 2006 seems really innovative and radical now. (laughs) And launching a voter registration app in 2018. And so I would just like to get some thoughts on how your life experiences have enabled you to identify those innovative methods uh, to engage the community. And more importantly, how your life experiences have offered you some innovative narratives 
if you will, that become inclusive narratives that pull people in. Before I started with Vodolichino, I worked in the private sector and AT&T was a client. And I did the unfun stuff, which was trying to get people to get equal access to the telephone system. This is how long ago it was, Darren. No judgment, no laugh, right? But at the same time, there was this thing called the internet. Uh, and at the same time, there was these cell phones. Listen, I still remember my first internship in college. The email was just starting to be a thing, right? So I know exactly what you're talking about. My walking's down memory lane then because it was around 2004, at the same time I was transitioning, that I saw young people everywhere uh, in the urban area were trying to get their hands on the sidekick, the T-Mobile sidekick. You remember that thing? It was like a training wheel. It was like a I'm brick. I'm dying laughing over here. Yes, it was a huge brick. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Those young people were connected online before we were. Yep. Because they were trying to navigate fun stuff, right? And mm -hmm. have conversation and everything. And at the same time, MySpace was all the rage. And we had roughly at the time, 5 million kids of all ethnicities learning to code. And instead, you know, we left that behind because we wanted something pretty through Facebook. But at one moment, mm -hmm. we had all of these really beautiful assets and it was technology that was talking to kids in a different way. And that's why we started exploring it because we knew that kids had text messages. Uh, that's how they were communicating. We knew that they had phones. We knew that they, that was the cool thing to do. And one of the true norths of Voto Latino is that we always try to go with our, where our community is. One, because no one does. And it's malpractice, I think, by all politicians, because it's not recognizing that oftentimes, especially communities of color, back to this, we, we'd feel like we don't belong in the political process. Mm -hmm. We feel that it is too hidey-toity. We feel all of this, but it's because there are systems that make us put, try to put us in our place. And so you have politicians and parties who don't seek us out. And it's, and at first I thought it was like, oh, it's lack of laziness. And then I realized, oh, no, because then if you really enfranchise us, you really got to listen to us. Oh, 100%. <laughs> and so that's why we started using these mechanisms and these the, these technologies. And some of them, you know, were spectacular and some of them failed miserably. Voter registration, Darren, I was like, this is going to be fantastic. No one wanted to fill out a 20-question form via text message. That is no not what text messaging was for, particularly when right. they were paying. For, I'm sure they were paying for messages still then, right? So, no, yeah. yeah. Well, no. Well, we would do it on the weekends. So it was all free. Like that's, I mean, We had a strategy. But what we did learn out of that was that all those people that we baked, that we did register, it wasn't very many. It was like around eight or, eight or 9,000. Um, but the people who did engage, we sent them a reminder to go mm. vote. And it turned out that that reminder encouraged young Latinos to participate eight times more than they worked. Wow. And when we did a control group to their white counterparts, we just saw a 3% increase among white young people. But among Latinos, it was eight points. Those are elections. Yeah. And that's where like, wait a second. So the, the experiment itself didn't go as well planned, but this externality allowed us to really understand how do we communicate with young people and how do we make sure that they are part of the process and how do we continue using it as a tool? And I think that, you know, the biggest challenge oftentimes when it comes to voter registration, engagement, democracy building is that most funders are afraid of deploying experimentation mm -hmm. in a place where we have all these incredible available tools that corporate America uses every day to sell their wares. And the way I see my job at Vodotino is that we market democracy every single day to our community. And yes. we have to go where they are. This idea that they have to come to us is bogus. 
it's lazy, and it allows politicians to remain in power with little effort. Oftentimes people say, well, how did that person get elected with 10,000? Because they only had, they only needed 10,000. But if we're really going to change the system and make it work for us, we need maximum participation 100%. across boards, right? And I think that that, and what we do know is that with maximum participation, you have the special interests toned down and extreme voices toned down because now you have to play to all of us. And I think that's where policy then really actually starts being transformational when you have to speak to all of us. And I want to come to that policy point in a bit, but I also just want to acknowledge that, you know, since 2016, we've seen a lot of folks begin to lose faith in American democracy. Um, and with good cause, I mean, things are looking raggedy as hell, right? So <laughs> you look at the situation, it looks like a bit of a mess for sure. As a person who has spent so much of, of her career getting people critically involved, what does it feel like to watch uh, folks actively disengage from participating in our democracy? And how can social change leaders bring these folks along without ignoring the challenges and the contradictions that currently exist from a democratic perspective as well? So how do we acknowledge the contradictions at the same time, bring people along and encourage them in a way that's hopeful, but also realistic? Before 2018, I kept having to remind people to trust me, <laughs> to trust the system. And then 2018 happened, Darren, and we saw the most diverse group of Americans come out and participate and register, the largest group of young people ever. And then we elected the most diverse House of Representatives that we'd ever seen in our history. The most women, the most Muslim, the most gay, the most veterans, the most, uh, the most. All the things. And all the things, right? And then a testament to what that diversity meant when we had even a modern, modest tick of a participation was 400 pieces of legislation that spoke to our values. 400 pieces of legislation that was, that talked about gay rights, that talked about immigration reform, that talked about parity among women when it comes to pay, about gun reform, about the environment, and the list goes on. And then we took it up a notch and said, okay, well, we're going to do rinse and repeat and win 2020. And we did it. We mm -hmm. took the House, the White House, and we took uh, the Senate. And when folks are saying, you know what, this the change is not happening fast enough, now we can point to what we will call the largest package in American history of legislation that I hadn't seen in my lifetime and most people around have not seen in our lifetime. This is what Biden has been able to do is produce legislation, sign legislation that is going to be far more impactful than the, the, Green New, the, the New Deal of the mm -hmm. last century. Mm -hmm. And I don't say that lightly. And does it mean that it is sufficient? No, but it shows that when we participated, coalitions came together to invest almost over $500 billion in our environment at a needed time that we passed legislation on gun reform after 35 years. And it goes on that we're bringing manufacturing out. And I say this because I know separately people who've been working on a single part of this legislation for over 30 years, mm -hmm. but it took a coalition of American, of multicultural Americans to come together and vote. And the reason we're having this moment where people think that the system isn't working is because we do have a group of Americans who are being un-American and unpatriotic, and they are trying to create subversive tactics for us to stop paying attention. Because what happens is if we don't have a democracy, we are closer to 
what I would consider and other scholars have written on apartheid rule, where it is a minority mm-hmm. of people dictating the destiny of the masses. But we are right now at a crossroads. We could say that the system works imperfectly and continue at it, but participating in the records that we've been able to see in the last two election cycles. Or we could get too tired and say this is too hard and seed our democracy for future generations. And the second scenario does not sit well with me because one, there's mm-hmm. no plan B. Two, I have two children, <laughs> a brown boy and a daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And this idea that to look at my kids' faces in 15 years and said, what happened to our democracy? And for me to look, I just got tired. There's something to be said, one, and I'm glad you named it as apartheid rule, because I've been sitting around the last few years thinking about, we learned in school all the time about the tyranny of the majority, but we never learned anything about the tyranny of the minority. Like, what, mm-hmm. what is that, right? It's apartheid rule, right? It's, it's literally what it is. But I think that your words are reminding me, uh, Irvish Shivade, who I quote all the time in an interview last season, her parting words to many of us at an event was, we are winning. This is what winning looks like. Winning mm-hmm. looks like chaos, right? Yeah. When, when folks see they're losing their rights, uh, the folks who have tyrannical views see that their mm-hmm. rights are being lost uh, deservedly, they become pretty desperate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that speaks to where we are now, where we have increasing amounts of folks who are very afraid of the idea of all Americans gaining voting rights. Uh, right. it's, 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 how did that become a partisan issue, right? Voting rights. And so, I mean, it speaks in many ways to why this moment is, in so, is so important, but I would love for you to just talk a little bit more about why this moment is so important in the history and, and the calibration and the work and the navigation of all that we're doing. Why is this moment so important? About 18 months into the 2020 cycle, Kevin McCarthy went after Voto Latino saying a liberal rights group is shaking up the process because they're registering voters. Y- yes, but it shouldn't, but you should be competing for those votes, right? And this is the time, Darren, that we need to have very frank conversations. Why it didn't happen in the 2000s, why it didn't happen in the 1990s, but why it's happening. It is happening because children in fifth grade represent a majority minority generation, the alpha generation. Mm-hmm. And there are people in power who do not want to share that opportunity that they were given to a multicultural America and shame on them because I deeply believe that America's strength is absolutely our diversity. It is Mm -hmm. absolutely a multicultural America that if we educate us, if we make sure that we are, we have healthy, uh, we have access to health care, that we have a thriving middle-class of Americans, like a truly thriving middle-class of Americans, we are unstoppable worldwide. And don't take my word for it. The Russians know this, the Chinese know this, and that is why they are meddling in our election and they recognize that racism is our Achilles heel. And they recognize that if we are busy fighting ourselves and creating division, then all of a sudden the world stage leadership is ceded to an unknown world order that is chaotic. And I say this because it's one part of our work is we do a lot of work around disinformation, the origins of disinformation, who's bringing disinformation Some of it is absolutely coming from the right, but some of it is absolutely coming from foreign actors. And it's mostly through the lens of race. And you have to question yourself, why would foreign states Hmm. care so much about our race relations unless it could be weaponized to divide us for their political gain? And I think it's one of the reasons why there was not a red wave in November. Because Americans as a whole are on to this idea that our democracy right now needs nature and nurture. 
and love and care, but also that there is an opportunity for us to have free conversations of why are we having modern day Jim Crow laws now? Why are those modern Jim Crow laws in effect after a certified free fair election of 2020? Why? Why are they trying to pile on more? Why are they trying to put women in their place when the disproportionate amount of women that are going to be impacted by these laws are women of color? Hmm. Just because of how old we are compared to older white Mm -hmm. women. And you have to start putting pieces together of it's a way of controlling individuals. It's a way of removing them for their voice. It's a way to make sure that the concentration of power and resources is not evenly shared among a population who works their butt off every single day 100%. to provide for the country. And I think it also says something to the fact that, I mean, you eloquently spoke to this idea of how do we make sure that we don't allow them to kind of hijack the American narrative and what it means to be American and what America looks like, right? This is literally America living into its best mm-hmm. uh, and a fear of that. You mentioned in many ways these demographic shifts in the fifth grade population as you talked about it and that diversity. Uh, what do you think the future of American democracy will look like? And how will the democratic shifts, becoming a Latino minority, what does that mean <laughs> in some ways, be instrumental in turning this future into reality? You know, I think right now we have to double down on our education of democracy. Because so many children and so many families don't know what that means and how to participate in, in efficacy and governance. and our social contract with each other. Hmm. And when you have the opportunity to study or travel and see other systems and you recognize that there is a reason why the world emulates us, even in our imperfection, Mm -hmm. it's because we are still on the pathway of creating the best form of governance that that has ever been experimented in. Right. But that's going to mean that our citizens have to be well versed in their role and in that social contract. And as I travel around the country, most young people don't know. And it's easy for them to want to tap out because they feel like another system is better until you're just like, you don't want other systems, you know, mm-hmm. where. It's, you know, it's funny because oftentimes people, I, people say, uh, they talk about socialism and communism. I've said, no, those are all under the guise, the guise of socialism is the guise, is, is a guise only because it's really a concentration of power and corruption. There is no checks and balances. If you want to look at what happens in Russia where it's a democracy, quote unquote, but it's only the oligarchs who mm. Putin is plused mm. that has that kind of accumulation. There is no bigger corruption tax on the little guy or that small business woman than autocratic governments Hmm. and communism. And here in the United States, we have to make sure that that's what we're fighting for. It's not just the democracy itself, but it is a form of being able to define yourself as best as you can. Are we living up to that moment, especially in communities of color? We're not, but it's because for so long, we haven't been nurturing and sending people in office that represent us. But I see few people like Maxwell Frost. I see mm-hmm. people like Greg Kassar. And it gives me hope because they speak to a generation that is aligned with a modern vision for America that is far more inclusive 
and recognizes at the same time, clear-eyed, where we have been shortchanged and where we need to actually make up. Yes. And I'd quote my uh, Howard professor, uh, Dr. Thornton. He always said that America's founding documents were perfect. Uh, They said that all men were created equal. We've just spent our country's history deciding uh, who is a man. Uh, Is it just landowning white men? Is it it white, all white men, white men, black men, women, immigrants, children, gay folks? And so I think there is something to be said about how do we, uh, from a future perspective, live into the documents that were initially created and Mm -hmm. where there becomes some degree of pushback when we just let everybody be a man these days, right? Everybody's got rights, right? Uh, right. There is something really powerful, though, in the narrative that you're talking about. Uh, you know, we ask all the time, what's the end game um, on those who are not progressive or those who are not inclusive? And the end game is very clear, right? It's a very limited um, hold on power for a small group of folks. Uh, and so how do we work against that? I do think the shifts you talk about from a demographic perspective are really powerful, and really meaningful and gives us a huge opportunity to actually live into our values in a way that's really high impact and drives all the things that we've been trying to achieve. I want to spend some time talking about Latinx community. Um, <laughs> you know, such an incredibly racially, culturally, socioeconomically diverse group. Um, what can funders do to honor these distinctions in their funding practices? And how can we get at that group recognizing its diversity while thinking about what are the narratives that link that community as well? Let me just table set a little bit because most folks don't know how young this community really is, right? So Mm -hmm. if we were to have a plot graph right here and your folks were able to see it, the majority of white Americans would plot around the age of 58. African Americans would plot around 31 years old. Latinos would plot around the age of 11. Wow. And we're talking about a young, young community that is coming of age when they're trying to stack the deck against participation purposely because they see that with this diversity of youth, they identify with the structural racism that has been beaten down into so many communities and that we are formidable as a multicultural society. And if we are to thrive, we have to make sure that all our young people thrive and we have to have that social component. And so when you're asking me like for Latinos, we are absolutely completely different uh, depending on where we come from. Our commonality is where we ended up. And I say this, that my cousin in Miami, Florida, she grew up and she could walk out the streets and be from Miami. Her family was from Colombia and there was no, no sass behind it, right? Like that she owned all of it. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Sonoma, California, that in eighth grade, the town next door, Napa, hosted the skinhead rallies. Confederate flags growing up in Sonoma were not uncommon. I grew up in a very different America than my cousin who grew up in Miami. And that absolutely shaped how I experienced the United States, but it also shaped how I was identified and how I identified. Hmm. It came to a culmination when Pete Wilson Uh, who was the governor then, convinced our neighbors to pass the original show me your paper laws through Proposition 187. And I remember very distinctly having to come home from college and tell my aunt and my uncle and my grandmother to become U.S. citizens, because that was the only way we were going to be able to protect ourselves. And just like I had that conversation with my family that Thanksgiving, millions 
of young Latinos and Asian Americans had that conversation. And California ceased being a swing state because it was young Latinos and Asian Americans that mobilized to protect our families. And we took that understanding and went to other places around the country. So in 2003, Latinos became the second largest group of Americans. For two decades in a row, Darren, Latinos have been responsible for over 52% of our nation's population growth. And that's not immigration, it's births. And when you look into a place where li my lived experience of what happened with Pete Wilson, the moment we were about to tip and make it a multicultural state with all of our brothers and sisters, that nasty politicians tried to use that as an opportunity to divide us for their own political aspirations. We, in 2004, looked at the census and said, where are young Latinos aging into the population? And we took a bet on Colorado, Nevada, Arizona. North Carolina, Georgia, Texas, and Pennsylvania. I mean, talk about naming the states that are in play. Good job, right? No, this is sadly we know humans. <laughs> Why didn't y'all look at Florida though? Because Florida's just who Florida's killing me. This is the thing, Florida, and we we'll, we work in Florida, but Florida is the only state where young Latino voters will not eclipse their aunts and uncles. Hmm. There's just not enough young people. Arizona right now, to give you an idea, Latino youth represent a larger vote share of the older Latino. They're like 32% of the Latino vote share, but they're 47% of the classrooms. So they're aging in. It's not by chance that you've seen voter restriction laws where you've seen 100% Britain and Black youth coming of age. The most underreported story of the Shelby County against Eric Holder that gutted the Voting Rights Act, the most mm -hmm. underreported story, Darren, is that Shelby County had experienced a 93% increase in the Black population and a 297% increase in the Latino population. <laughs> you got them losing sleep. Right, but I mean, but I get this oftentimes from the progressives too. They're like, well, Latinos are anti-LGBTQ. Latinos are anti-abortion. Latinos are, and I said, no, you have to stop putting your perceptions, your biases on my community because none of that is accurate or true. In fact, among young Latinas who are the largest vote share, 83% of them believe in abortion care. If I were to include my grandmother's generation, we're talking 73%. Wow. So they're not that far off. No, 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 not at all. Well, it is interesting that whole concept of like projecting onto the community the things that you want to be all true in your own or the things that you're embarrassed about in your own, right? Yeah. I was talking to a reporter one time. It was right after the 2020 election. 70% of Latino youth voted for Biden. 60% of Lat older Latinos voted for Biden. And then she had the audacity to say, well, you know, as I read that Latinos are deflecting to the Republican Party, I said, that's not true <laughs> because of X, Y, Z. She's like, actually, no. I'm like, yes, I'm Latina, but I'm also for the last 18 years, an expert in the field. <laughs> you you kind of know a little something about this, right? Like you. <laughs> right. Like, I need to, I mean, if that is what's, I need to know, like for my work. And I have never been in so many rooms and I'll never remember forget this reporter. She's lovely, but she actually had the audacity to just look at me and say, well, that is just flat out wrong. I said, I can't imagine you looking at, well, we know how that you know, yeah. a, a John Podesta or, a, you know, or a Jim Messina or a Dan Fiver and saying you are wrong. No, you would never do just, that. No, no, actually, you're wrong. There's something powerful about the, you know, America is all about narratives, right? Uh, and so I think there's something powerful about being able to tell a new narrative. At the same time, there is something, you know, I, I see it all the time where people will tell a story enough 
in hopes it'll be true, although it's a damaging and problematic story, right? Right. And I think it, it speaks to as well, what does it look like as those populations, you know, increase and the demographic share increases to still other a group that's the majority, right? Like, what, how does that othering piece play out? And, and I know you tweeted about this one, the Grammy scandal, where Bad Bunny's performance was, what, what is going on here? Like the implicit or explicit othering that happens in those situations. I mean, what do we do about that othering within the Latinx community? If you were to ask everyday Americans, what percentage of Latinos were undocumented? It's a good, I want to say one out of three people think that every time they see Latinos undocumented, right? Where the, the number is actually less than 10%. It's actually, it's small, right? But part of it is because when you do read anything in the newspaper, it's always related only around immigration or it's only related around the border specifically. Mm. But if you look at the media and how they cover it and who's in the newsrooms and understand this nuance, those executives are just not there. And part of it is because we're young, but part of it is because there's also this, you know, one of the, my favorite conversations that interviews that I ever saw was between Frank Rich and Chris Rock. Hmm. And Chris Rock, it was a seminal conversation where Chris Rock said, do you know how hard it must be not to be able to find a Latino Steven Spielberg in Los Angeles that's 70% Latino? It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. I mean, California is such a, I mean, talk about a, a state that's changed its brand in the best way possible, yeah. right? But like, you know, we, we had some bad governors, Whew, we just some bad politics. Yeah. It's also, it's not just our governors. It's, I, would, I would actually say it, it's the implicit bias of executives of where Latinos mm. belong. Mm -hmm. I had a, a former boss. He was the chairman of an unknown network that I don't work at, another one. Who literally looked at me, who basically his critique to me once was, you speak too fast, there's never any way that you're ever going to advance. Oh, wow. And had I taken his word for it, I wouldn't have been able to continue on my journey. Yep. Right? Um, six months later, he was, you know, clicking MSNBC and he sees me all the time now. <laughs> and that's his own. But it's this idea of we need a lot of work when it comes to diversity and inclusion. We have to have conversations that are not just black and white but that is opening the aperture of who actually is here in America and what do we contribute and how do we make sure that we are resourcing these communities appropriately so that we maintain a thriving country. And, you know, with our work, we very much focus on young people because we deeply believe that they are part of a broader generation that believes in climate change, that believes in gun reform, that believes in access to healthcare. And I don't have to convince them of that, but what I do need to do is convince them that the system works if they participate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you know, to give you an idea, in Arizona in 2020, we registered 32,000 folks. 19,000 of them were first-time voters. Wow. Biden won that state by 12,000. But the work remains because just in those four years, between 2020 and 2024, we're expecting 163,000 Latinos to turn 18 in Arizona. That's really powerful. And I want to recognize the great work that you're doing and thank you for that work. Uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. Really enjoyed it. And one of the ways I love ending uh, some of the sessions, um, I joked that at a therapist many years ago, used to always say that um, sometimes hope comes from experience. And so I would love for you to close this out by sharing, you know, as you think about what makes you hopeful, what are the experiences um, that, that bring you that hope? Where does that hope come from? So my life is oftentimes through electoral lenses. 
I've seen the shift of engagement. When I started Voto Latino, just tried to convince people, even it, whether it was corporate America or uh, a young person to participate, they always said it was too political. Hmm. It was too political. It was too political. And now what I'm seeing is an engagement that is so intersectional of Americans recognizing that our house is vulnerable and that it needs attention and repair. And it didn't just happen in the 2018 election. It didn't just happen in the 2020 election. It happened as well in 2022. And the fact that if you look at all the Secretary of States where there were election deniers on the ballot for that role, none of them won. And that means that, again, it was a multicultural America that we all came to nurture our house and to fix it and love it. And what we need is people to continue that participation, not just at the voting booth, but we still need great folks uh, working on election day, but we also need great people to run for office, hmm. to make that aspiration true. And so that's what gives me hope is looking at the entering class uh, of Congress. We have such talent and such young talent and such diverse talent. This is going to be this entering class in 2023 uh, for the fresh for the freshman class. It's the largest Latino ele electorate in history. That's progress, but it's also the youngest as a class, and it's also the most multicultural as a class. And so, when I talk again, these electives, what gives me hope is that I don't have to convince them that climate change is real. They're there because they know and they need to fix it. And Maria Teresa, I know that I promised that was the last question, but I just cannot let you go without acknowledging that there's a fear of funding the political on the philanthropic side. What words do you have for those funders, uh, those in the philanthropic community who are backing away from funding the political, from funding C4s, from funding that work? What advice do you have for them? Bring them in, please. We are fighting for the structures and aspirations of democracy. And we're on those front lines. And if we were going to have candid conversations with our donors and with our funders, the reason that they've been able to enjoy the fruits of their success is because of our democracy. It is because we have a stable system of governance. We also have a social compact where we are educating our folks effectively. There are roads that those folks that work in their offices get to drive to every day. We just understand that if we turn on the, elect the electricity, it will work. Like we, we take all of these things that our government and our democracy take for granted, but it is because it was rooted in stability. And when there's chaos in the streets, no one thrives, but in particular, the individuals that actually are reaping the most benefits of what our government has had to offer, whether it's the stability of our government, whether it is educated workforce, whether it is uh, access to incredible healthcare. There's no reason for us not to want a thriving country for all of us. Uh, and the best way to do it is through that democratic lens. And so we have an opportunity to stabilize it because we are absolutely at a crossroads but we have an opportunity to stabilize it for future generations uh, in a great, beautiful way. Wonderful. Wonderful closing words. Great chatting with you. I look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks for making the time. See you again soon. Thank you. You have a great team. Thank you so much. I'm so appreciative. Every single time I cast a vote, I'm reminded that my great-grandpa Lee, born in 1889, his daughter, my grandma Lois, born in 1925, 
and her son and his grandson, Michael Kermit, born in 1947, all voted for the very first time in the 1968 elections. The first election Black New Orleans was allowed to vote in since Reconstruction and the introduction of the grandfather clauses some 100 years before. At 79, it would be the first and only time my great-grandfather, a third-generation college-educated landowner, would be able to vote in his entire life. He would die the following year, just some years before New Orleans, a forever black city elected Dutch Morial, the city's first black mayor in its then 260-year history. And although this is a story that I've shared many times before, it's one worth repeating, because for so many of us, the right to vote was a hard-earned one, fought over multiple generations, events by many who knew they would never see the fruits of their labor, but they fought anyway to shape a world that future generations would enjoy. And as Maria Teresa spoke, with such hope of the youthfulness of the Latinx community and the promise to come, it reminded me of our duty to act as elders for those that come after, to offer a roadmap for them to follow and to add to. My Grandpa Joseph was a huge jazz hit, and he would often DJ for me, playing a nonstop roundup of his favorite jazz finals. Miles Davis, Coltrane Garner, Monk, he had many favorites, but Duke Ellington was his absolute favorite. And as he'd play his albums for me, he'd repeat for me Ellington's story. Ellington's mother, Daisy, surrounded her son with dignified women to reinforce his manners and teach him elegance. His childhood friends noticed that his casual, offhand manner and dapper dress gave him the bearing of a young nobleman, so they began calling him Duke. My grandpa loved Ellington's piece, Three Black Kings, particularly the third and final movement, written as a tribute to Martin Luther King Jr., and it's easy to love. It's one of the most beautiful jazz symphonies ever written. Smooth, soulful, hopeful, and love-filled. And although I grew up listening to it, I was well into adulthood when I learned that Ellington dictated this symphony from his deathbed to his son, who scribed, and that he would die never having heard it performed. It was his son who produced it from dictation many years after his father's death. Which makes me wonder, what are we dictating for others to take away and to build upon? What foundation, soundtracks, roadmaps, and green books are we offering for future generations to live by? What world are we dreaming for them to live in? Hopefully it's one as beautiful and vibrant as Maria Teresa imagines, because that's a world worth fighting for. Well, y'all, that's a wrap. And while the episode is finished, the work continues. Thank you for tuning in and listening generously to Dreaming in Color, a Bridgeman supported Studio Pop Media production. Special shout-outs to our wonderful show producers, Teresa Buchanan and Denise Savas. Our video editors, Dave Clark McCoy, Diana Radaelli, and Alejandra Ramirez. Our graphic designer, Diana Jimenez, and our show coordinator, Nicole Genova. And a huge shout-out to our ever-brilliant Bridge Band production team and family, Cora Daniels, Jasmine Relaford, Ami Diane, Christina Pistorius, and Ryan Winslow. Be sure to subscribe and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Talk soon.